Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's daily COVID cases have passed the 700 mark for the first time since June. Are we going to move back into another lockdown or maybe further restrictions? The Ontario Chamber of Commerce will launch a campaign that speaks to why concerns related to Ontario's businesses need to be front and center during this federal election. Rocco Rossi, president and CEO for the Ontario Chamber, joins us. And according to a member of the Taliban negotiating team, the Taliban will not extend the evacuation deadline. The spokesperson said troops would be crossing a red line if they stayed past August 31st. What are the next steps? We'll talk about it. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. COVID-19, pandemic, Delta variants, it's all with us right now. Uh, first and foremost, we need to get down to the basics about where we are on this. And uh, it's, it's a troubling picture right now. Ontario's daily COVID-19 tally has now passed the 700 mark for the first time since June. The pandemic has certainly been tough on our healthcare workers, but so many other people are being impacted by this too. Emily Javesky has some details. Ontario is reporting 722 cases of COVID-19 and two new deaths linked to the virus. Health Minister Christine Elliott says 564 of the latest infections are among people who either are not fully immunized or have unknown vaccination status. Elliott says 82% of Ontarians over the age of 12 have received one dose of vaccine and slightly under 75% have received two. Emily Javesky, The Canadian Press, Toronto. So those numbers are in themselves troubling, but uh, there seems to be some concern uh, about messaging when it comes to COVID and information as well. Uh, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni. Dr. Uni is the director of Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. I, I'm, I'm very interested in getting you read on some of these numbers. But first of all, let me talk about the, the breaking news that uh, we've been talking about on the newscast here through the course of the morning. Uh, one of your colleagues, I guess now former colleagues, uh, has resigned from the science table. Dr. David Fisman uh, sent a letter of resignation. And I, I just got to read a line of this to, for, so our listeners have the context here. Uh, Dr. Fisman writes, more recently, I find myself increasingly uncomfortable with the degree to which political considerations appear to be driving outputs from the table or at least the degree to which these outputs are shared in a transparent manner with the public. Uh, and it goes on and on, but I, I'm sure you've seen that, and you, our listeners now have the gist of this. Uh, yes. When you were on the program, Doctor, a couple of months ago, you expressed some frustration about the what you would, as a science table were presenting and what the government was presenting. Uh, there seemed to be some miscommunication there. Is, is, is that what Dr. Fisman seems to be alluding to? No, I don't think so. So, look, um, I think it's very unfortunate. David is a, is an excellent scientist. It's very unfortunate that he resigned. Um, but, you know, we continue to do our work and we're not at arm's length from the government. We are completely independent of the government. And, you know, while we need to really navigate all of this well, you know, if it comes to modeling, for example, we just need to get it right. And there is a process in place that hasn't happened during the summer break, actually. And this, uh, this, uh, because the you know the modelers had 18 months in a row just working 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 and this process includes uh, looking at a variety of models and then find consensus and uh, show then you know the range of uh, potential projections and this hasn't happened 
And, and um, I think the discussion now just relates to that, that we don't want just to go out with a single model, for example. Um, and this will happen eventually. This is uh, quality assurance and scientific considerations that we're having and not the uh, political considerations. You've, you know, you've heard me before. So far, um, I'm uh, really trying to be honest, um, as honest as I possibly can be with the public, and this will continue to be the case. And, and I think your reputation is, is solidly that, that you're very candid in your comments. And but in previous email or tweets, rather, before that, and I don't want to belabor this too much, but uh, Dr. Fisman seemed to indicate that uh, there is uh, modeling data that's available right now that he seemed to insinuate paints a pretty dark picture. And for some reason, it's not being released. Is is, is Now that I know the official answer from the uh, the science table was that, well, that work is not complete yet. What is the status of that, Doctor? Well, that's true. So first of all, this, you know, this. Uh, that of course, there are models out there. We also get uh, sent model output as well. And as comes to what he probably refers to, I'm not completely sure what he does because we haven't talked about that. This is coming from a, a single modeler who is actually not even uh, right now yet a member of the modeling consensus table. You know, the point is there are a lot of models out there, and they will, and we want to get this right here. The point. Um, being that when you look also at other places in the world, um, we see the same sort of pattern. The pattern is now after we left step two of the reopening, we start to be in exponential growth. It looks actually better right now than it uh, used to in about, about 10 days ago. But it's clear that we're not out of the woods yet and then some extent of restriction will be required in addition to a continued vaccine effort to get to the next level. The next level will be that we vaccinate kids below the age of 12, hopefully in December. And what we need now, of course, is again, reliable modeling and, you know, we, uh, this is a volunteer table. I mean, we can't expect from uh, from the, the volunteers that we're having out there just to do everything just, uh, you know, on day X, Y or Z. This is happening now in the background. And when the new modeling, the consensus is ready, this will go out as usual. Last week, we had uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the uh medical officer of health chief medical officer for the province of ontario on the program and he uh, i'll just paraphrase the doctor suggested that uh, we need to face the hard and truthful facts here that uh, it's going to be a very frustrating uh not just fall but into winter as well and we need to be cognizant of that do you share that view yeah, we need to be aware of that. You know, we will be out of the woods completely with the alpha variant. We talked about that before. And with Delta, we are not. But the point really is people need to understand there's a solution there. And the solution is very simple, getting vaccinated. And you know what we now really need to make sure is that people understand their theoretical considerations about safety of the vaccine or that it has been around only for a relatively short period of time they're basically just uh, are disappearing compared with the risk associated with getting infected with the Delta variant. And therefore, I really hope, you know, that people st start to just get that, that we continue all to discuss the issue and get more people now vaccinated. We even started, you know, to show new analysis on our dashboard. If you go to, uh, you know, if you Google Ontario Science Table, you will find our dashboard. We now real time daily 
updates, uh, basically the uh, COVID cases among unvaccinated and fully vaccinated with graphs, hospital occupancy and ICU occupancy. And what you see is that that yes, um, against cases, the, you know, the the uh, reduction uh, with full vaccination is only about uh, 85 to 87 percent only in inverted commas. It's still great. But against, you know, admitted uh, being admitted to the hospital and being admitted to the ICU, it's 96 to 98 percent, the reduction that we see with full vaccination. These vaccines really work and they really break, you know, all the unpleasant elements of this virus. Just get vaccinated. I sound like a broken record, but it's just really important now for everybody. People will get infected during the next 12 months if they're not vaccinated for sure. And if they're not vaccinated, they will have a relatively high risk to end up on an ICU, which is completely preventable and therefore for all of us so painful to see if people continue to think theoretically about, you know, potential safety issues with the vaccines. There's an interesting uh, analogy, and you've kind of bottom line this at the science table that I just wanted to uh, bring to our listeners' attention. Uh, and you use an example here, a hypothetical example of a room full of 100 Canadians uh, that are representative of the population. 35 of them probably are unvaccinated, and you say of those 35, probably 33 of them can expect to become infected with the virus as it circulates the room. Uh, that, that that pretty much underscores exactly what you're saying, that uh, there's almost a sense of inevitability. If you're not vaccinated, you're, you're at very, very high risk. Yeah, this was the journalist who brought up this analogy, not me. But the point really is, yeah, the virus will circulate, not the room, but the province. And all of these, nearly all of these people, you know, nine out of 10 people are not vaccinated based, you know, on, on very straightforward models will get infected during the next six to 12 months. Whether it's six or 12, I can't tell you. It depends on the behavior of people. But this virus is eventually finding everybody. Therefore, it's so important to get vaccinated. You break the problems uh, of the virus by getting vaccinated. You mentioned the vaccines. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've been preaching from the same sheet as, as you have, that this is absolutely, absolutely essential that people have to get both of them. Uh, but we're also finding now that uh, there's some concern being raised in, in some circles about just how long that vaccine is going to be effective. And, and you know that some jurisdictions, doctor, have already started to opt for a third shot, a third vaccine now, uh, especially for the most vulnerable people. Are, are you OK with that protocol? Yes, look, we need to look into two things. One is we were in a completely different situation as especially Israel. You know, you're implicitly referring to Israel that is uh, starting or has started already the booster shots. Israel, they did according to the cookbook uh, originally of Pfizer and just vaccinated people first dose and then the second dose within three to four weeks. We didn't do that according to that cookbook. You know, we suggested early on and, and then NASA did that and then others to have a bigger gap to first get um, the most... Um, um, bang for the buck when we still had the alpha variant and this was associated with one dose and then the second dose came much later. Now what we know now with hindsight that not only we did the right thing at the moment because of the alpha variant but also our protection is better. Meaning if you have a larger interval between first and second dose your antibodies in the blood will be higher and this means this, this, uh, this waning immunity against being infected 
it will probably be less pronounced with us a bit than in Israel. We will see how it goes. And things start to may still start to be an issue after six to eight months after uh, the second dose. Now, the real point here is, well, every uh, single data point I've seen so far that looks at hospitalization and ICU admission shows that the protection against hospitalization and ICU admission is maintained. The only thing that changes is that if you are perhaps eight or 10 months down the line, especially if you're elderly or have, you know, an immunosuppressant or so, then um, you have uh, less protection against infection and transmitting the virus. So that changes. So this eightfold decrease, you know, in the risk of getting infected right now, perhaps will become fivefold over time and then fourfold or threefold decrease. It's still protective, but not that high anymore. What does this mean? Again, the unvaccinated are then even more exposed the longer this goes. Therefore, the unvaccinated should do the right thing and protect themselves and also protect others. You mentioned about some of the variants. Let's talk about that if we could for a couple of seconds. Uh, you know, the, there's a gamma variant, of course. We talked about the, belt, the beta variant, and now we're dealing with the delta variant, uh, which is, as we're told now, uh, more transmissible and, and possibly more serious than all of the others. Uh, are you concerned about yet another variant if this thing lingers? Look, this is a bit like at the Olympics. Uh, once you have somebody, uh, you know, a sprinter who does 100 meters in, don't ask me, 9.6 seconds or so, it's very difficult to beat them, no? And uh, I would hope that Delta is really now the uh, the uh, optimum, you know, from an evolutionary perspective. Can I guarantee that now? No, of course not. We don't know what's coming. Um, but Delta is actually a pretty mean adversary already. So I would hope uh, it doesn't get worse than that. We will see. Therefore, it's important to continue, you know, the work we're doing. And it will also be important, you know, to continue to be careful with the borders. Because um, typically, once you become of a variant being a problem, it's already too late. It's already in the country. Is uh in, in some people's minds, uh, some of your colleagues are concerned about, you know, where we're going with this from a political standpoint. And I know that's not your main focus. Your main focus is, is public health and, and the great work that you are doing at the science table. Uh, but some are suggesting that a, some form of lockdown may be inevitable at some point to try to get a harness on this. Uh, because as bad as the numbers are now, they're expected to go even higher uh, when the kids go back to school and people start to, some anyway, start to return to the workforce. Uh, is there a way to mitigate that damage? Is there a way to avoid what some people are saying is an inevitable lockdown yeah look so first of all we need to be aware of uh, that we need to define what is a lockdown right now no and um, some restrictions will be inevitable now the point is really if we um actually get at least 50 percent of the 850,000 people out there 50 plus who are not yet fully vaccinated to be fully vaccinated our burden our theoretical burden on the icus will decrease obviously quite considerably by about 40 percent which will help us already that's one point so we need to get the right people to be vaccinated and then we need to make it you know with good protection of schools into the period of time hopefully end of the year when we also can get vaccinated the uh, the lower age groups that will all help will this be enough no it won't there will be some sort of restrictions and we need just to be aware of that while case numbers can go higher than before first of all right now this is not the case yet because of the schools with below 12 year olds not being vaccinated yet but uh, once they're vaccinated we can also you know change this attitude a little bit 
But uh, the other part is, is, then, uh, is then also that we need just to keep the ICUs okay, meaning we need to find, you know, a common understanding about how many ICU beds can be occupied by COVID-19 patients. That's what we're facing too. If we then keep having unvaccinated people, these unvaccinated people will occupy our ICUs. And we need to make sure that we still can continue to do all the non-COVID healthcare in the hospitals, have the operations going, etc. So we will need to find a new balance. And there will be a moment after kids below the age of 12 have been vaccinated, where it's mainly hospital occupancy and ICU occupancy with COVID-19 patients that will determine how much additional restrictions are needed. Can we do it without restrictions? Forget it. It's impossible. Uh, some of those are already in place, and, and you've mentioned, and I know many of your colleagues have talked about the idea that we still have to maintain uh, the, the protocol that, that we as, as individuals uh, should be maintaining, that is face masks, social distancing, uh, and large crowds, avoiding large crowds as it was. Is, would your advice be to governments, not just this provincial government, but all governments, to hit the pause button until we get these numbers under control? Oh, look, what means numbers under control? Again, we need to be aware of there is eventually everybody needs to get infected or vaccinated. There's no way out, no? And we need to go there and we don't want to close too much. But the point right now is we have high-risk settings out there, indoor dining, bars, clubs, gyms. What do we do with these settings, you know? And the big question, here we are again with vaccine certificates, even if people don't, some people don't want to hear it, others will. Um, you know, there is a possibility to have restrictions imposed only for the vulnerable. And the vulnerable are those who are not fully vaccinated. And I continue to believe, and we see that in other places in the world, including Quebec, that having vaccine certificates that say, okay, you need to be fully vaccinated if you enter a gym, for example, um, that this could make a difference because what do we do with that? We prevent people uh, who are not vaccinated from getting infected in the high-risk setting and then potentially ending up on our ICUs. Dr. Peter Uni, doctor, as always, great to get your perspective on this and your candid comments on this. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Take care. Dr. Peter Uni, of course, is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Week two of the federal election campaign and uh, the uh, leaders, actually the main party leaders, are uh, either in central Canada or the uh, maritime provinces right now. Both of them, a number of them spend a lot of time out in the western provinces the other day. You've got to anticipate they're going to spend a little bit more time in Ontario. There's a lot at play here in both Quebec and Ontario as this election moves forward. And uh, to that end, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has weighed in on this with a, a program called Ontario Business Matters, uh, and which they are, of course, will be sending forward, I guess, to all of the the parties and, uh, and their leaders to try to get some response about this. And uh, there's an importance to this too this is not just uh you know hey this is ontario and this is alberta everybody's going to want the you know their piece of the pie uh there's some pretty staggering numbers here that indicate just how important ontario is to the canadian economy uh, rocco rossi is the president and ceo of the ontario chamber of commerce and he joins us to talk about the uh, the proposals and the suggestions and uh, and the impact that those could have rocco always a pleasure hope you're doing well these days Thank you, my friend, and thanks for uh, shining a light on uh, on this. It's more than just a horse race. 
Well, it certainly is. Uh, but as you say, the implications here and, and, and what's going to happen here is, is extremely important, not just to Ontario's future, but to Canada's future. And the numbers don't lie here. They tell a story, don't they, Rocco? Ontario is home to almost 50% of all employees in high-tech financial service and other knowledge-based industries. Uh, I know that some people bristle in other parts of the country when you say that Ontario is the economic engine that drives uh, this country. But uh, that, that seems to be the indication. I know it once was and still is. The, the facts don't uh, don't lie. I mean, we're 40 percent of the GDP. We have the greatest number of uh, head offices, as you say, the you know, the technology hub of uh, of Canada. It's not to say we're, we're number one in every industry, but um, um, but so goes Ontario. So goes the Canadian economy. And so we really want to shift the debate a little bit from you know, all of the media stories typically are, you know, vote rich Ontario, vote rich uh, GTA. Um, And what we want to say is this is actually the economic engine. And you better have policies that are focusing on how do we grow this? Because all of this accumulated debt and deficit, at at the end of the day, if we're going to pay it back, if we're going to pay for the social programs everyone wants to have, then we're going to need to have significant private sector growth. And that's really what we're calling on all of the major parties to be far more explicit and focused on how that's going to happen. You know where I think a lot of this is being driven to, and this is this is just my anecdotal observation, Lorac, over the last couple of days. It's it's from the grassroots, it's from small business, it's from people on the street uh, that are basically telling all of the politicians in this federal election, look, don't try to woo me with shiny objects and trinkets. What are you doing for me? What are you going to do about my job security? What are you going to do about my small business? Uh, they're demanding that kind of action now. We've been living through an existential crisis, as as you know, and tragedy that has seen tens of thousands of businesses in Ontario shutter forever, Uh, people losing jobs, not being sure about where where the the next opportunity is, what it's going to look like to return um, to to the office, how we're going to protect um, uh, people moving forward, how we're going to ensure, for instance, that, you know, women return to a participation rate uh, in the economy that we saw before uh, the pandemic, which has now taken those participation rates back to levels we haven't seen since the 90s. How do we, how do we think about training and retraining in a world where change is accelerating every day and where we've seen that those businesses that have been able to to, to pivot more to the digital side have been far more successful. So how do we ensure that people are trained to take advantage of those opportunities going forward? And finally, in a world where it's going to be increasingly competitive, can we once and for all remove the barriers that we have between provinces and territories that serve only to make us smaller and less competitive vis-a-vis the rest of the world? 
I'm glad you brought that up. It's something that it's a, a bone that we've been chawing at for the last uh, number of years here, and, and because it's off the radar for an awful lot of people. I mean, the focus has been, I guess, because of the negotiations that went on in the new NAFTA deal about Canada-U.S. relations, and that's certainly important. But some of the trade barriers, interprovincial trade barriers, Rocco, that you've just referenced, are more onerous than than some of the tariffs that we've heard about from previous uh, American administrations, and they've been in place forever. And every time somebody says we should do something about it, the the premiers immediately get their backs up and say well okay you can change it but don't change ours because we need this uh, somebody's got to be able to, to do something about this and, and if not eliminate these things at least mitigate the impact they have on the economy the conference board of, of canada and the former governor of the bank of canada stephen polis have have calculated that if we were to eliminate the barriers between provinces and territories every man woman and child in canada would effectively get uh, an average of $2,000 this year, next year, and every year going forward. So not to mention the the taxes that that would then generate for, for government. So when you're looking around for something that can create massive productivity increases without governments having to cut another check, and goodness knows with the deficits and debts they have, they're going to be less able to do that on a sustainable basis. We need this. And to your point, there are often more barriers between Ontario and Quebec or Ontario and Manitoba than there are between Ontario and Michigan. And that makes no sense at all. Well, and it's it's got to be part of the discussion. Do you get the sense, though, that, that there's an appetite, I mean, at the political level now, to actually say, yeah, this is the time. I mean, you know, we're, we're into recovery right now, and we're not starting with a blank slate necessarily, but I think one of the easiest things to do, and you guys talk about this with your policy paper, Rocco, is to expedite the recovery, The fact is, is eliminate some of the barriers and things like interprovincial trade tariffs and things like that. That's one of the barriers. Yeah, there have been some excellent conversations uh, between Ontario and, and, and Quebec. And let's face it, there are $80 billion a year in interprovincial trade between just those two uh, provinces. So if we could move the dial there, obviously, we'd love to do it um, Canada-wide. Uh, but but let's get let's get moving and continue to accelerate those uh those conversations and we stand ready to help in whatever way shape or form we can i want to throw something else out at you because i know you and i've talked about this in the past and you know this is the federal election so there's going to be a lot of uh, pressure on federal uh, politicians and would-be politicians i guess to move forward but they can't do it alone there's got to be a cooperative spirit between provincial governments and the federal government and and let's let's focus if we could in ontario for just a second because one of the drivers and we found this out after the 2009 uh, recession uh really can get the economy back on track in a quick way here in ontario is the auto industry which is pivoting. And we've talked about the great investment that the automakers themselves are making into things like electronic vehicles and battery production and things of this nature. Uh, but there's got to be a cooperative spirit between the feds and, and the province here. And, and that means both of them are going to have to ante up. You're bang on. And, and both have given some indication of it. And you have seen some investments. But this really is going to have to be a, a longer-term strategy and, as you say, coordinated effort. If there's one silver lining through all of the, the COVID pandemic that we could build on, it's that particularly in the, in the early months, uh, it's becoming a little more frayed now that things get more political, but in the early months, you saw this 
massive collaboration, cooperation between all levels of government. And we need to be engendering that and accelerating that every chance we get, because whether there's pandemic or or not, the competitive nature of the, the world is such that if we're not bringing our A cooperation game to the table, we're simply going to be left further and further behind. And, you know, electronic vehicles, electric vehicles is a perfect example of it. And really needing to do things, uh, you know, you look at battery production. At the end of the day, that's also about mining. That's also about ensuring that we get those critical minerals that, that are part of that supply chain. And that involves regulation and policy at both the provincial and at the federal level. And also with a new spirit of cooperation and real, real economic sharing with our Indigenous brothers and sisters. Because if you want to get true reconciliation, uh, let's make sure that, that they have a fair and equitable uh, piece of the, of the pie and reason to, uh, to participate in the economy. Well, and part of that discussion has to be mineral extraction and, and where that money's going to go. And I know that's been a touchy point for the federal government, frankly, and, and provincial governments, especially here in Ontario over the last little while. I know that uh, uh, former Premier Bob Ray and, and many others, of course, have been involved in those negotiations. You, you're right, you know, Rocco, you've got to step that up as well. Uh, and it can't happen. I mean, you know, just to, to go back to the 2009 recession recovery, uh, I'm still in my mind, I've got that picture of Prime Minister Harper and Premier Dalton McGuinney standing there in the same podium making this joint announcement. Now, those two guys were not best buddies, uh, but they understood that in a sense of cooperation and in a sense of, of expediting recovery, they work together and their staffs work together on this. Uh, so if those guys can do it, uh, anybody can do it. And I, I agree with you, by the way. It, it seems as if uh, there's more of a sense of cooperation uh, with Premier Ford and, and, and what the federal government may end up looking like after September 20th as well. That's got to happen. And, and they've got to be on the same page when it comes to this recovery. Shared interests should trump any personal enmity or political differences because the shared interest is absolute relative to to all of us. If this election is going to be more than a Seinfeld election, more than an election about nothing, then how do we map out how do we map out an acceleration of the recovery um, such that we create um, a, a, an inclusive kind of growth that's going to provide opportunities for all going forward. That's that's what needs to be the focus. You talked about infrastructure, and that's, that's a very key point to this, too. We're talking about uh, movement of goods, things of this nature. I, I know that in the bad old days, and we're going back maybe 15, 20 years, uh, Canada was actually probably the worst G7 nation when it came to an international or a national rather transportation strategy. Are we getting better at that? Uh, we we are struggling along still, and you're absolutely uh, right. Infrastructure of both kinds of physical, so that's roads, that's trains, that's automobiles, but also the digital. Uh, I mean, there have been some encouraging investments by both the provincial and federal government in terms of broadband expansion. That has to accelerate further. You have to ensure that you've got the right environment within which uh, the major telecoms will continue to uh, to invest and expand as well, because this can't just be done uh, by uh, by government. There has to be partnership and cooperation, not just between the provincial and federal government, but between 
all levels of government and the private sector. And that's why, you know, we've put this uh, this focus and this platform forward to try to focus people's uh, attention and the politicians' attention on things that we believe will really move the dial for the economy. Well, you talked about uh, not just physical infrastructure, but also, as you say, programming infrastructure. And one of the key issues in this debate, and we've already heard a, a couple of different perspectives on this, is, is a, a national child care program. Uh, and it's it's been on the table for quite some time. In 2005, the, the government of that day thought they had the solution to it, and most of the provinces bought into that and got nixed in that election. Uh, we've got some very different perspectives on how child care should be delivered and how it should be funded uh, coming up on this election, too. Uh, I, I guess the best advice here and the takeaway, Rocco, is uh, pay attention to the debate because it's going to have an impact on what we're going to do going forward. 100 percent. As we've looked at, uh, you know, going back to that issue of participation of women in the economy, if you're going to grow the economy, you want to have as many people participating in the economy as possible. And so what are the systemic barriers to that participation? And the single biggest one is that if you do not have efficient, effective, affordable uh, child care, and unfortunately, as, as modern a society as we, we think of ourselves as, women still bear the disproportionate uh, burden of of the raising of our of our children, and so when when daycare basically shut down, when the schools shut down, uh, women effectively had to come out of the economy to take care of of kids. And you have a massive impact on the economy. You look at you know getting getting workers back into hospitality tourism other areas that are having difficulty and people want to you know blame this all on the serb or or ei there are systemic uh, barriers if you're not going to deal with this so as we look at social programs that are not just about justice but are about being engines of economic growth there is none higher on the list right now than having a system. And you can debate, you can debate around, you know, some of the flexibility that's required. The conservatives are focused more on the, the tax credit side, the liberals more on, you know, building a system and, and, and spaces that are, are going to then provide the supply uh, to help meet the demand. And you can, you can have a legitimate debate around, around those issues. But what, what is becoming increasingly clear is you, you've got to have a system and you look at the advantages it's given to Quebec having uh, that kind of a system. That's something uh, we need to see. And you're seeing a bunch of the provinces agree, most recently Saskatchewan, a conservative government, agreeing with the federal government saying, OK, we're going to sit down. You're putting money on the table for a child care program. We want to work with you to make that that happen, and and many of the others have already signed up. Uh, that's something we need to work on. 
One final point, and I find this rather interesting in reading some of the, uh, the promises being made right now. Uh, both the two major parties, both the uh, Liberals, and I guess to a certain extent even the NDP, I guess all three of them now, have talked about uh, the potential for wage subsidy programs uh, for people that are getting back into the workforce and are going to need a bit of a leg up uh, because the, the, the hours may not be there, et cetera, et cetera, which t to me, Rocco, sounds very, very much uh, like the guaranteed income program that they tried here in Ontario a few years ago that all the political parties federally said, oh, we can't afford to do that. Uh, now I guess th this is maybe a time they don't want to call it that, but if it's if it's not guaranteed income and in name, it certainly is in spirit, and that's something that has to be part of the discussion. Well, I, I'm not sure the two are are equivalent. They could be if they're permanent. Every the, yeah. the ones that have been speaking about it thus far, it's really around the need of having those subsidies on a transition basis, because as you well know. Uh, Bill, and as we've said before, the reopening of the economy is not an on-off switch. It's a dimmer switch. Um, you know, and, and, and so as you, as you open up your, your business, if you recall everyone, but you don't have 100% of business, of your business back, that's just a recipe for going bankrupt faster. So how are we going to, how are we going to manage the hours, et cetera, and all of the, all of the parties are talking about some system to help facilitate uh, that ongoing transition. Well, it's a, a fascinating piece of, uh, of, of work here that needs to be a part of the discussion and part of the debate. Uh, and uh, as always, it's uh, not surprising that the Ontario Chamber is front and center here to try to make sure that this is going to be on the front burner as the uh, the leaders talk about this over the next four weeks, I guess, before Election Day, which is four weeks from today. Rocco, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Stay well. We'll uh, talk again soon. Thank you, sir. Stay positive, test negative, get vaccinated, and buy local every chance you get. There you got it. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The situation in Afghanistan has gone from troubling to uh, frustrating to, uh, well, dangerous for an awful lot of people. Uh, it's uh, appalling to see the way things have gone on the ground here, trying to get as many people as they possibly can, and the clock is ticking. As chaos continues at the Kabul airport, the U.S. is warning the Taliban. Global's Jennifer Johnson has details. Days of chaos and stampedes outside Kabul's airport have left at least seven Afghan civilians dead as thousands try to force their way into the airport to flee the country. The U.S. National Security Advisor again warned the Taliban to let every American leave the country or face consequences from the U.S. military. 25,000 Afghans have gotten out since August 14th after U.S. President Joe Biden announced American soldiers will be pulling out of Afghanistan by the end of this month. But thousands more remain, fearing for their lives under Taliban rule. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. Well, an awful lot of adjectives come to mind to try to describe just what's happening there. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Chris Alexander. Uh, Mr. Alexander is the former Minister of Citizenship and Immigration and also Canada's first resident ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, Mr. Alexander, pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Thank you for having me. Well, not enjoying this crisis oh, otherwise well yeah it's it's, it's 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 a fiasco that's really what it comes down to and and you know i i understand we're very concerned and, and focusing on on canada's role in this as we should be uh but a pox on all their houses chris i mean nobody's got their act together here no um and it's a uh, wrong strategy that has collapsed um no one expected it to uh come apart so quickly there were a lot of people in the White House and elsewhere who thought there would be a ceasefire or some kind of peaceful transition of power, power sharing with the Taliban. 
all of that went up in smoke. And most people who uh, know the Taliban well and know where they came from uh, knew that we had lost all our leverage and they were going for broke. Uh, so the fact that there weren't preparations for this disaster uh, is is appalling. And we're still not using all the tools the international community has available. I mean, the UN should be calling for humanitarian corridors for restraint on the part of the Taliban. Uh, the threat of sanctions should be out there against the Taliban and all who are supporting them. And the idea that the Taliban should dictate terms uh, for to the whole world about who and who who can and who can't leave Kabul uh, is is outrageous. Uh, we need to get uh, our acts together here. We need to coordinate. We need to stand on some principles because uh, this crisis isn't going to go away. And I know some people have already talked about maybe, you know, military action is going to be required here. I don't know that anybody wants to go down that road. I know there are U.S. forces there that are, uh, well, the word they're using is coordinating. I'm not so sure they're doing that at all. Uh, And we know that Canadian special forces are there, and uh, Minister Sajan says they may actually be used in a more proactive measure. Uh, To that point, though, how do you control this? It sounds as if they don't even control the airport at this stage. They don't. Uh, I think U.S. forces control the military side of the airport which is you know half of it civilian side is uh is is catch as catch can a dog's breakfast of arrangements um but let's look at this uh you know before the announcement of this withdrawal uh and the perception of weakness that it created there were only 2500 u.s troops on the ground along with many more thousand u.s contractors and they were the backbone of an afghan national security force that that was doing the job they weren't having an easy time against the taliban but they weren't going to collapse uh with the announcement of that withdrawal the taliban went on the offensive with their backers from pakistan and now joe biden's had to send back over six thousand marines more than twice as many troops as he had there before just to control half the airport uh so we've gotten some things wrong and much smaller forces including the italians the british and others have been more aggressive in actually uh, going out to get the people that they know they need to protect and bring them to safety. There should be much more coordination. There should be an open-ended effort. There's a G7 meeting chaired by uh, Boris Johnson uh, in the coming hours, I think, uh, that should challenge Joe Biden's assumptions on this and show that the United, the, at least the G7, and, and with luck, a larger group of NATO allies are are getting their act together on this. Yeah, you, I, I used a key word here, and that's a, a coordination. And you, I'm just wondering, just you know, to what extent there is any sense of coordination going? I'm sure you read some of the reports over the weekend, as I did, that uh, a number of people who quote unquote have qualified uh, through the Canadian mes- methodology, they fill out all the forms, they got all the necessary uh, documentation they needed, and they're being turned away by American forces at the airport. I mean, in other words, the paper's not good enough, even though it's authenticated. Uh, so uh, there doesn't seem to be any sense of coordination. Here. And you, you juxtapose that with the statement that the president made over the weekend that uh, their role was to get not only Americans, but other people from other countries out of there, too. That doesn't seem to be happening. It's not yet happening. I've been working with um, you know, hundreds, thousands of Afghans that have contacted me and others and have good reason to want to get out, trying to get their information to Canadian authorities, 
to their own national authorities if they're not Canadian and to private groups that are working on this. And no one's happy with the level of coordination. Answers are changing day by day. This is not uh, the kind of work we did in Afghanistan over 20 years. This is uh, painfully, uh, has been painfully mishandled. And for Canada to promise 20,000 refugees our protection and then not have the tools on the ground to deliver is particularly bad. Uh, We seem to have the most bureaucratic requirements uh, and we're putting them on people who don't have access to offices, who often don't have access to the internet. Uh, We can't expect people to jump through all of these hoops uh, when they're actually at risk of losing their lives. We have to be much more pragmatic, uh, much more proactive. uh, And if, if, Others won't stand up to show leadership and bring people together. We should do it. What are you hearing from the people that have contacted you? I mean, one of the the stories we heard was, well, the problem here is getting people to uh, Kandahar and getting them to what's what's happening, or Kabul, rather, uh, from Kandahar. There's only one road, and, you know, the Taliban has roadblocks set up, and it's uh, virtually impossible to try to get there. But I'm hearing that. Uh, also, that there, once you get there, that's where the real problems start. Because, as you mentioned, there is no process in place right now for people that are there waiting. Uh, some of them, as I mentioned, with proper documentation uh, to be able to get on there. This, the, the, there was no infrastructure set up. In, and I understand uh, you and I talked about this, I guess, last week when you were on the program that this came along a lot faster than everybody thought it would. But notwithstanding that, there doesn't seem to be any any infrastructure to be able to handle and, and to process these folks. Yeah, I think there are three problems. One, as you say, the vast majority of people are in parts of the country that are a long way from Kabul. And to get there, the one functioning airport with international flights at the moment, they have to go through Taliban checkpoints. They have to face all kinds of threats. Uh, they have to spend money bribing people along the way in most cases. Uh, and, and all of that is a huge problem. So there's a larger issue here of uh, Afghanistan and its neighbors uh, being under an obligation to keep their borders open so that if people need to flee, they can go to Pakistan, Iran, uh, China, or the three countries to the north. Then there are people who don't have the documentation. So they won't go to the airport because they know they don't yet have uh, the, the, the uh, approval that will get them onto a flight. And then there are people who have the approval, but as you say, uh, are fear going there because they're just going to be caught in this in this mass of people uh, and the Taliban at some point will ask them for the documentation and they are people being targeted by the Taliban. I mean, let's keep in mind, people want to leave in these numbers with this urgency because the Taliban are going away from prying eyes and away from uh, television cameras. They're going door to door to find out where the people they've been uh, waiting to settle scores with actually live. Uh, and that's why people who write me and many others uh, are terrified of the Taliban outside their very doors. And they don't know how to get to the airport safely, let alone um, to get to an office or to a, a visa processing center. All of these hoops make life more, more dangerous for them at the moment. Well, because we've heard the stories about a number of the people that you've just described. They're, they're right now in safe houses uh, in and around there. And, and you know, how do they... <laughs> How do they show their faces with you know, the fear of reprisal from, from Taliban as soon as they step outside the door? I mean, there's, again, you know, that comes into the idea, okay, can they be protected? And right now, I guess the answer is no. Yeah. And I think what hasn't happened yet, though, that has to happen is that 
the international community needs to switch from this mode we were in for 10 years of talking to the Taliban, trying to make a deal with the Taliban, making concessions to the Taliban in these negotiations at Doha, which went, uh, you know, in my view, uh, and I think in the view of most Afghans, went wrong uh, and went on for far too long into a mode where we say clearly the Taliban are not upholding basic rights. They are, they are a recognized terrorist group. They are dangerous uh, to the Afghan people. And we're no longer going to make concessions with them. We're going to push back with all the leverage we have. And there is a lot of leverage, whether it's IMF funding or assistance or recognition that they crave and are not going to get anytime soon. We've got to use all of that and no longer be a doormat for these for these thugs. You mentioned about the, the meeting that uh, Boris Johnson is trying to facilitate now with the G7. It's supposed to happen tomorrow. Uh, you know, the, well, the Prime Minister has already been on record, Prime Minister Johnson, that is, of suggesting that he wants the U.S. to extend that deadline beyond August 31st. Uh, the Taliban have already said, don't go there. That's crossing the line. Are we heading for a conflict here? Possibly. Uh, but if the international community came together, the G7, the U.N. and others, to insist that this is a this is a bare minimum, if they want anyone to do any business with them at all, uh, they would have to shift their position. And we should also use the leverage we have with Pakistan. They are the main backers of the Taliban. They have brought the Taliban to power in Kabul, de facto power anyway. Uh, the threat of sanctions against uh, the Taliban's backers in Pakistan would go a long way towards uh, giving us the leverage we need to protect people uh, and make at least, at least some people feel uh, relatively safe. It seems as if one of the goals here is going to have to be to get the Taliban to stand down on this and just allow this process to unfold, uh, which they don't seem willing to do at this stage. Uh, but the decision is going to have to be made on this pretty quickly. I mean, I've looked at some people that have done some of the math on this, and it would take weeks, if not months, I guess, to process and get everybody out of there that wants to be out of there right now. Uh, that's not going to happen by the end of August. So there's going to have to be some negotiation or discussion or something about extending this deadline. But it's going to have to be a significant extension, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, and, and even if the Taliban slammed the door shut on August 31st, shut the airport, <clears throat> said no more military flights, uh, we would all have to get to work very quickly trying to restore access to this country of nearly 40 million people. Um, the, the Taliban, no, no regime anywhere in the world uh, should be allowed to cut off communication uh, to end the right to free movement, to mobility that everyone ought to enjoy. I mean, North Korea does it to some extent. Some other authoritarian regimes come close. But Afghanistan has been relatively open. Uh, and, and the whole world has a stake in not letting that legacy uh, die overnight. Um, and there are lots of other ways, uh, lots of other forms of leverage the international community could use. There's Bagram Air Base. There are other um, capitals around the country with less of a Taliban footprint where uh, access could be restored. Um, and if it takes an international, uh, an ultimatum, you know, under UN authority, but led by the principal democracies, we're going to have to go that way. It, it probably will involve confrontation with the Taliban. Um, this is not uh, an organi- uh, 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 a body that, that compromises, uh, and their failure to compromise has brought them, and, and our naivety has brought them back to power. So let's stop being naive, uh, and let's use the leverage that we have 
that we know works uh, with, with, as I say, thugs and terrorists. Can we and should we flex our muscles? I mean, I, I understand there's always been a reticence uh, for governments and, and the international community, I guess, uh, to, to confront China, for instance, because they're afraid of not just the economic ramifications, but other things. Well, the two Michaels come to mind. Same thing with North Korea because of the nuclear situation. You know, you don't want to get send them off on a deep end. Uh, the Taliban are, 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 are a bunch of despots, and they are still, as you mentioned, uh, a terrorist organization in the eyes of, of most of the G7 nations that are going to be meeting tomorrow. How how far do you push them, uh, you know, from a military standpoint or otherwise, to simply say, we're not going to take your, your, your protocol here, we're not going to follow your orders, you're not in charge here? I think we need to push them far uh, and and as quickly as possible. Um, they haven't been pushed for the last two years when Trump was doing his very unfortunate deal with them last year or by Biden this year, who's simply implementing that deal and, and doing it in some ways faster. Um, it's time to change the approach uh, and go back to uh, the, the policy the international community had over the longer term with the Taliban, which kept them out of power and which kept them marginalized inside Pakistan. Um, these are among the m- most egregious violators of human rights, women's rights, girls' rights, the rights to education. Uh, they put Afghanistan into the absolute economic ditch uh, for the five years they were in power. Uh, we have, after 20 years of strong international presence in Afghanistan, a lot more leverage with the Afghan people and with all the networks that now um, that now uh, pass through Afghanistan than we've ever had before. But we have to be willing to use it. Uh, and that that's where the problem is, because people are still in this mode, G7 leaders, their officials, of, of wanting to compromise, wanting some kind of deal to be made. And the Taliban are holding out the prospect of sharing power with Ahmed Karzai or Dr. Abdullah or some other non-Taliban political figures. But from what I read, uh, you know, Karzai is now living in Abdullah's house in Kabul because the Taliban have taken over his house where he lived with three daughters in the presidential, on the grounds of the presidential palace. Their guards have all been disarmed. These guys are virtually uh, hostages of the Taliban. Uh, and there's not going to be any real power sharing with them. They're just being used uh, as a smokescreen to delay a tougher approach from all of us. The sooner we see through the smokescreen and take the tougher approach, the better for everyone. From your experience, all your years, not just on the ground there in Afghanistan, but since then, and you've done some some great work, uh, especially in this particular uh, enterprise, are, are the Taliban even capable of diplomacy? <laughs> exactly. I, I don't think so. I, I mean, they are in that they showed up in Doha and uh, found out a diplomatic process for several years that actually fooled more people than it should have. Um, but at the end of the day, when the history of their movement is written, I think any responsible analyst is going to have to conclude that they're a military organization. They operate on the basis of fear uh, and intimidation. And the reason why the diplomacy continued um, was that they had and uh, increased their leverage by continuing to use military force. They never embraced the ceasefire. They never even reduced violence for a sustained period of time because they knew their only leverage over all of us uh, was the violence that we and the Afghans so badly wanted to end. Well, it hasn't end- ended. We made every concession in the book. Uh, they decided after 
Biden's announcement of the withdrawal to go for broke, uh, launch a full invasion of Afghanistan, and they took Kabul in 95 days. It's embarrassing, but uh, it's scandalous, but it should lead to a full re-evaluation of everyone's approach towards the Taliban and their sponsors in Pakistan. Chris Alexander, former Minister of Citizenship and Immigration and uh, the Canada's first resident ambassador to Afghanistan. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, as always, thank you so much for this uh, and continued good luck with the work that you're trying to accomplish there, and hopefully we'll uh, get a better result. We'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks. Here's hoping. Thank you. Bye. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.